you have your Bibles, please turn with me this evening to Mark chapter 4. Having ears to hear. Step into a new chapter, and with it comes a new theme. For the past three chapters, we've considered a concept surrounding Jesus' presentation as the Son of God with authority. His declaration, then the controversial actions that surrounded His exercise of authority, and then the response of the religious leaders to said actions. But what we haven't actually done yet in the Gospel of Mark is hear much of what Jesus actually has said. He's responded a little bit, but we haven't really gotten much teaching from Mark. And this is actually one of the interesting characteristics of the book of Mark in general, that the Gospel tells far more about what Jesus does than what he says. And this stands in very strong contrast to the other Gospels, particularly to the Gospel of John which seems to focus significantly much more on what Jesus said as opposed to what he did. To this end, Mark 4 is the first time that we truly hear at length within the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' is teaching in, in this Gospel, and the topic of note is the topic of hearing, of what we might call listening. There are many people in this world who come into contact with the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ideas come into their ears, uh, some knock on the door of their hearts, but only a subset of those will ever actually open that door and truly hear the word of God. And this is the topic of Jesus' teaching, at least in the beginning of Mark chapter 4, really through a good portion of Mark 4. Not just in verses 1 through 20, as we'll consider this evening, but in the verses that follow as well. But we are going to stick to only the first 20 verses this evening in an attempt to do full justice to the teaching. So we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, And he, that would be Jesus, began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So Jesus is back by the seaside, and a great multitude gathered. I remember in chapter 3, we were kind of in a house, and there was a lot of stuff happening in a house. Now Jesus is back by the seaside, a multitude gathers there. We've already considered why it is Jesus went to the seaside to teach because they could not throng him. They could not completely surround him if he was backed up by water, right? So that they could form a concave around him, but they couldn't get behind him and thus they couldn't throng him. It made it much easier for him to be able to teach with everyone being able to be in front of him without people being behind him and then all of the complications that come with that. So in this case, the Bible says Jesus enters into a ship. Whether he cast off a ways or not, in this instance, we do not know. We know that there were times, particularly when he called Peter um, and, and spoke to him of such where he would cast off a little ways and, and he would teach in that manner. Um, but in this case, all we know is that he got into the ship to create again that natural barrier so that they couldn't just completely get in his face, but he could back off a little bit. The people could be a little bit away from him. They'd form the concave on the shore and he could teach to all of them. Uh, without being thronged, without distraction of such. So Jesus is on the boat and the whole multitude is bordering the waterline on the shore. Verse 2. 
And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine. So the text then tells us that Jesus was going to speak to them in this case in parables. Now we've spoken already about the distinction of what parables are and why Jesus used them. Those distinctives will hold sway here as they always do. That parables have a singular point. That it is driving home that point. That the various other aspects of the parable, the things in the parable that are not the point itself, may or may not mean something spiritually, but at, at the very least, they exist to support the point. The singular point that the parable is seeking to drive home. Now, the parable that we come to today, ironically, we, we, I give all of those points about what a parable is and the fact that parables are not allegories. Not everything in the parable has to mean something. And we immediately get to the parable of the seed and the sower, in which the vast majority of the things in the parable do, in fact, mean something. Now, that does not subvert the point. But in this case, we do see one where there is more of an allegorical feel to the parable. However, even though there's more of an allegorical feel to this parable, one of the benefits of approaching a parable in the way that we recognize we are supposed to, which means that it doesn't have to mean every, uh, everything does not have to mean anything, is that what you will start doing if you start reading parables in this manner is you will start looking for the main point. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about the parable of what is often called the prodigal son. Yes, the, the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son is someone that you can focus on and there are many spiritual lessons. But don't allow the spiritual lessons of the prodigal son to cause you to miss the point. And the point is actually about the son that was not prodigal. It's about the son that stayed home. And we know that from the context. In the same way here, we're going to see this allegory and uh, this allegor more allegorical flavor to a parable. And that's fine and that's good. And we'll learn the lessons from it that we need to learn. But we don't want to miss the point. Because the point is why Jesus is giving the parable. So we read this parable beginning in verse 3 of Mark chapter 4. Jesus said, Hearken. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some, that would be the seeds, fell by the wayside. And the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, because it had no root. It withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus paints a picture of a day when a sower went out to sow seeds. And a man went out into a field, and he planted seed by casting them upon the ground. This would not have been an uncommon way to sow a field in that day. After having plowed the field and turned up the soil, then to cast seed out into the soil. And if the seed landed on turned up soil, it would then take root and it would sprout. But any farmer who would plant in this way would also understand that this was a game of averages. That only so much of the seed that fell upon the ground would fall upon proper ground. Another seed would fall upon ground that was not prepared or not proper, or other seed would fall and the birds of the air would be able to pick it up before it could properly 
uh, root into the ground. And because the ground, certain ground was not prepared for the seed, some of it was not able to root at all. Others would root but not sprout, and others still would sprout but then die before it could bear fruit. So it was a game of averages in that sense. And Jesus, in this parable, gave four scenarios in this game of averages as it related to the seeds being cast forth into the field. He said, first, there was seed that fell upon the wayside where the ground was hard. It was unfit for planting. These seeds would sit upon the top of the dirt. It couldn't even get into the dirt. The dirt was not prepared for anything. It, was, it, it would have been uh, fallen upon dirt that was completely, um, maybe um, uh, completely trampled down. Maybe it was a walking path or something of the sort. And there, the, because it would just sit on the top of the dirt, the birds would come down and would eat all of those seeds and the seeds would never even make it really into the ground. Then he gives a second scenario. And the second scenario is seeds that fell upon stony ground. Uh, this isn't dirt that in itself is too hard to take seed, but that the dirt, as, as Jesus says it here, is shallow. It's filled with rocks. It naturally hinders the capacity of the roots to establish, creates very shallow roots, so that when the seed does indeed spring up, but because the roots cannot sink enough into the earth to get the water and the nutrients it needs, when the sun is up, it scorches the plant and the plant is, is killed by virtue of its shallow roots. So the plant dies without bearing any fruit. The third is seed that falls among the thorns. The soil here is good enough to sustain the life of the seed. It's able to put down its roots. It's able to begin to grow. But as it grows, so too do the thorns, the weeds that are around it. And of course, there's now competition for the nutrients. And the weeds being what they are, being weeds, are able to choke out the plants so that the thorns grow and they are strong and they choke out the plant and it dies before bearing fruit. And then Jesus gives a fourth and final scenario. And that is seeds that fall upon good ground. And the ground has been tilled and the ground has been prepared and the soil has been cleared of, of weeds or thorns and of rocks and the seeds that fall upon this good ground, they spring up and their roots are strong and they bear good fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And then Jesus gives the point in verse 9. He says unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there are two ways that we can take this exhortation. The first, uh, first would be an exhortation regarding the parable itself. Jesus will go on to tell his disciples that he spoke in this parable because it is not given to everyone to know the mysteries of the kingdom. That it is not given to those that are without, but rather to those that are within. To this end, Jesus is exhorting those who can hear to hear. Let him that hath ears to hear, hear. So if you're able to hear this, if you have the faith to hear it, then hear it well would be the idea there. But there's another idea that's just as valid, which we find rooted in the objective of the parable itself. To the extent to which we will bear fruit, or the extent to which we will bear fruit, is dependent not necessarily upon the fact that we hear, but rather the amount that we bear fruit or the capacity to bear fruit is dependent upon how we hear. Not just that we hear, but how we hear. So yes, it's an exhortation that those who can hear would hear, 
but it's also an exhortation that those who, who, are, who are able to hear would hear properly. In other words, the thing that matters most is not that the seed falls upon ground, but that it falls upon good ground. Not just that the seeds are planted. As a matter of fact, it, the, the focus of the parable is not at all upon the fact that the seeds are planted. The focus is about the soil into which the seeds are planted. And so when he says, he who hath an ear to hear, let him hear. The question is, what is the condition of the soil of your heart? And this is what we find as Jesus continues. Verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable, asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the, king, the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So Jesus gives this parable to the multitudes by the seaside, the Bible tells us. And then we fast forward to a later time when Jesus is with a much smaller group of people. The Bible says alone, but we know he's not alone because someone's talking with him, right? So he's not alone alone, but he is with a smaller group of people, um, with a more intimate group of his disciples. And they that were about him, with the twelve, while he is alone, right? So... That, that's the definition of alone. Ask Jesus about this parable. Jesus is no longer thronged. Certainly the twelve are there, presumably some others, maybe Jesus' relations, uh, maybe those that he pointed to uh, in, in Mark chapter 3 when he said, these are uh, all, all these who do the will of my Father are my brothers and sisters and mother. And they ask Jesus about this particular parable. And Jesus first responds by saying why it was he chose to speak in parables. As we mentioned, because it is given unto some to know the mysteries of the kingdom, and it is not given unto others. Huh. What does that mean? And the idea here is not that God has chosen to allow some to understand and chosen others to be unable to understand. We've talked before about the, the, the various ideas surrounding what we would call Calvinism today or Reformed theology. The idea that God has chosen certain people to enliven their faith and to be able to understand the scriptures where he has chosen others simply to not be able to understand. Effectively, what this boils down to, although many within those circles will deny it, is that God has chosen certain people to receive salvation and he has chosen other people to be damned. We do not believe that at Legacy Baptist Church, nor do I believe that this parable or the idea of parables themselves lends itself to this concept. The idea is not that God has chosen, chosen to allow some to understand and others to be unable to understand except in this particular way. That God has chosen to create a system whereby only a subset of men will be able to understand. Namely, the subset who are willing to exercise faith. So Jesus spoke in parables as a means by which to weed out, 
considering we're talking about the parable of the seeds and the sower, no pun intended, but to weed out those who were unwilling to hear. Those who were unwilling to hear, who would not exercise faith, who did not choose to come to Christ in faith and to listen in faith, it would not make sense to them. But those who had ears to hear, those who were willing to exercise faith, to submit themselves before the authority of the Savior, to them it was given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The subset of men willing to hear with a heart of submission rather than a heart of, of authoritative judgment against what Jesus was saying. And Jesus says that this is exactly why he taught in parables. So that those whose hearts were unwilling to hear would not understand because the parable is spiritually discerned and must be taught to a man by the Spirit as he responds to the Spirit in faith. And those whose hearts were willing to hear would understand because the Spirit of God would respond to the faith of the man with illumination. And this is what Jesus means by the mystery of the kingdom. Now, as you think about this idea of the mystery of the kingdom, unto you it is given to understand the mystery of the kingdom. Consider what Jesus said about this mystery in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 27, the Bible says this, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul speaks of the nature of a born-again believer. Once alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works, but then reconciled through Christ to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. Paul then says that he rejoices that he might suffer for the body of Christ as the man chosen and ordained by God to share with them the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to Christ's saints. That word saints there simply means holy ones. It is not speaking of a, a, a subset of believers. It is speaking to anyone who has accepted Christ as their Savior. Anyone who has accepted Christ as their Savior is a holy one, one who will be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. Therefore, he is a saint. We don't have to elevate ourselves to sainthood. Uh, we don't have to have the church elevate us to sainthood. That is not in the Bible. There's nothing like that in the Bible. The saint is the one who is holy by virtue of being under the blood of Christ. So Paul then tells us what this mystery is in verse 27. And the mystery is Christ in you, 
that which he calls the hope of glory. Now, what does it mean to have Christ in us? Well, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus promised that he would go away. And when he went away, he said he would send his comforter, which is the Holy Spirit of God. Paul telling us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Christ in you is connected to this idea of the, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. And Galatians 4 tells us that the way that it is that Christ is in us is that he has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, that God sent forth the Spirit of his Son. That would be the Spirit of Christ. That would be the Holy Spirit of God. That would be the one that John calls the Comforter. By which we find that the mystery which is Christ in me the hope of glory is, in fact, the promise of the Spirit of God indwelling me. And this is confirmed, if we go back to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. In Colossians 2, verse 2, Paul, continuing to write, he says, "...that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ." So Paul desires in Colossians chapter 2 that those who have never seen his face in the flesh would be comforted and knit together in love. He says, unto all full assurance of understanding, to the, to the acknowledgement of three things, three persons, the mystery of God, the Father, and of Christ. So we have the Father and the Son, and then we have this third acknowledgement, mystery of God. Well, who is, what is the mystery of God? That, that's the Spirit of God. How do I know that this is the Spirit of God? How do I know that the, the acknowledgement of the mystery of God here is the Spirit of God? Well, first we see this list, right? The mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So it makes sense that this would be the Holy Spirit. But there's no question that the mystery which God hath revealed to those in Christ is the power of the Spirit indwelling us because that's what we saw in Colossians chapter 1. The mystery which hath been hid from ages and, gener and, and generations but now is made manifest to his saints. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Christ in us is the mystery, that was the thing that was hidden from ages and generations but now is made manifest to his saints then this mystery of God is the Holy Spirit of God. Back to Mark then. Jesus said it was given to them to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but it was not given to those who were without. Now, there would be a great debate in theological circles as to whether or not the mystery of the kingdom is the same as the mystery of God or the mystery that is the Spirit of God, the mystery of of, of Christ in you. It could be well argued that these are not the same mystery. But here's why it might be the same mystery. Here's why I think that when Jesus is saying here, it is given unto you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, why this is at least 
related to the idea of the mystery that we see that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians 2 that was revealed to his saints that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything that Jesus describes here, the capacity of those who choose to hear to understand and the incapacity of others who cannot understand, who choose not to hear, to not understand. The idea of Jesus using parables to separate those who will hear from those who won't hear, those who are within from those who are without. The function of Jesus then revealing the mystery of the kingdom to those who are within, but not to those who are without. This whole paradigm, this whole idea of withholding from certain ones that mystery. All of that is, in fact, an interaction which centers upon the Spirit of God in our age. In John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said this, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So Jesus told his, his disciples that the Spirit of God would be their teacher, that he would bring all things to remembrance that Jesus had taught them. Paul would go on to say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7-14. through 14. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now, this is not Gnosticism. Paul is not saying here that they speak on terms that, are mis that, that, that cannot be accessed by others. What he's saying is we speak in terms and those terms can only be discerned by a subset of people. Verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Paul tells us that the apostles speak in the wisdom of God in a mystery. The mystery which God knows, he has revealed to mankind. Not to a super secret select few who have some sort of special path of knowledge into God, but rather to those who are spiritual, 
to those who have been given the Spirit of God, to those it is given to understand the things of the Spirit. And in fact, no man can understand the things of the Spirit of God except the Spirit of God teach him. No man can understand spiritual things apart from the Spirit of God. So that a person, even a Christian, walking in carnality, who is not uh, submitted to the Spirit of God, will fall short of understanding certain spiritual concepts because he is not in communion with the Spirit of God and so cannot be taught by the Spirit of God. This is how you, you, you can interact with that person, and maybe you've known that person, who has a tremendous amount of Bible knowledge but does, simply does not understand the spiritual. He has a tremendous amount of, of, of knowledge of spiritual things, but the way in which he applies them, the way in which he navigates this world, is not connected to those spiritual concepts because he understands he understands academically the things that the Bible's saying, but he does not actually understand them spiritually because the Spirit of God is not his teacher. The Spirit of God teaches those who have the Spirit the things that are freely given by God. And this is the idea that Jesus speaks to here. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 here in Mark chapter 4, verse 12. In Mark 4, verse 12, he says that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. That's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, where God promised that the nation of Israel would see, but would not perceive. They would hear, but they would not understand. This is not because they could not perceive. This is not because they could not understand. But rather, this is because they would reject the testimony of the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God could not teach them. So they would not understand. They would not be converted. They would not have their sins forgiven. But these that were Jesus's on this day were men who had received the teachings of Christ. They were spiritual. And so it was given to them to know the lessons, the meaning what was underneath the concepts at hand. However, you say, well, okay, pastor, that's great. So the Spirit of God is our teacher, and it was given to them to understand these things. And so there's this parable, and uh, they need to understand this parable. And Jesus spoke in parables so that a certain subset, the people that didn't have faith, the people that didn't exercise uh, their, their ears to hear, would not understand it. They would hear this, and they'd say, okay, great, a planter, uh, planted seeds. Okay, fine. Um, and they understand it, but then, then we get into the smaller group and we ask you and we understand it. But, but pastor, didn't you already, didn't, you, you said that the Spirit of God is the teacher. Why then does Jesus have to be the teacher in this instance? Well, it wasn't taught to them by the Spirit yet because the Spirit wasn't given to them yet. Right? Jesus said, I will go away and then I will send my comforter unto you and he will do this thing. At this point, Jesus was functioning in that manner. Jesus was functioning in that capacity. Jesus was the one who was taking these concepts and teaching them, and then Jesus would go away, and he would send another who would do the teaching now. Jesus was not going to stay and do the teaching. Jesus stayed, and he did the teaching for a little bit. And then he would go away, and the Spirit of God would pick up the ministry where he left off. So, this, so, so Jesus is giving us in Mark and in the Gospels a prototype for what the Spirit of God would then do. So in, in their day, 
They would come to Jesus, they'd hear this spiritual lesson, and they'd come to Jesus, and they'd say, Jesus, what does it mean? And Jesus would tell them what it means spiritually. And in our day, we hear a spiritual lesson, and the Spirit of God does that same thing in our hearts. He takes the concepts, the spiritual concepts, and he un uh, unweaves them. Uh, he he uh, unpacks them in our hearts and helps us understand the spiritual things at hand. Until the day of Pentecost, until the day where the Spirit of God would fall and would begin this ministry, Jesus would be their spiritual teacher. Jesus would discern those who had received his words and those who did not receive his words. And to that end, he taught to this group of people because he had discerned that these were the ones who had received his words. And then when he was in the broader multitude, he taught only in parables because they were among many who simply would not receive his words. So then we come to the meaning. Verses 13 through 20. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? How then will ye know all parables? That's an important phrase. He says, How can you know any parable if you don't know this parable? We'll talk about why Jesus would say that and why that's so important to us in a few minutes. He says, The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they that likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty and some an hundred. So Jesus tells his listeners that the seeds are sown, that are sown in this parable are the seeds of the word. The seeds of, of God's truth. And this truth can fall upon four different types of hearts. As the word goes forth in any given context, whether we're talking about the gospel, whether we're talking about Christian teachings and doctrines, whether we're talking about uh, the, 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 the Proverbs, whether we're talking to a believer or an unbeliever, as the word goes forth, it lands on four different types of hearts. First, that truth can fall upon a waysided heart, a heart where when the word is sown unto them, Satan, represented by the birds here, immediately is able to steal away that truth through his lies, through his deceits, through his confusions, through his false promises. This man who that portion of his heart, whatever that word is falling on, that portion of his heart, his heart is absolutely unwilling and unprepared to hear it. It's just stony ground, or not, not stony ground, it is just wayside ground, right? The second then is the stony ground, the, the word that falls upon stony hearts. These are hearts which have some soil so that when they hear the truth, they receive it with gladness. They, they immediately receive it. There's some soil there, so they hear this truth. They say that is truth, and they receive that truth, and it begins to immediately spring up. However, that truth does not hold sway in their hearts. 
the roots of that truth do not grow deep in their hearts. And so when difficulties come, when that truth is put to the test, when persecutions or sorrows arise, they immediately abandon the truth in order to get back to a state of not being sorrowful or persecuted. They want that ease to return, so they abandon the truth for that ease. The third truth is truth which falls upon a thorny heart. These are hearts which also they receive the truth that's given to them, maybe not quite as readily even as the stony heart, but they receive that truth and it actually can take root and it can begin to grow. However, alongside that growth, there are the cares of the world, the allures of riches, the desire for the things of this world. And they enter, they are in that heart as well, and they are able to choke out that truth so that when the day comes where they have to choose between the things of this world or the things of the world to come, between the, their, their faith in what God has said with the promises of the world to come or the, the immediate gratification of the things of this life, they, they, they choose this life. And so they never fully receive and that this truth to where it actually bears fruit in their heart. And notice this carefully, Christian. Of those three soils, those three bad soils, there is not one of those soils where that seed actually bears any fruit. We are not talking about a, a seed that bears fruit and then dies. We are talking about three different seeds falling on three different types of soil and they all get to various processes of growth, but none of them bear any fruit. Then we come to the fourth seed. And it falls upon a ready heart. And this heart receives the truth. And this truth bears fruit in their lives. This truth bears fruit. They are willing to follow this truth above the cares and, and loyalties of this world. They are willing to follow this truth even in times of difficulty or persecution. They are willing to follow this truth and reject deceptions and lies as it would relate to that truth. And it bears fruit. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't always bear the same amount of fruit in everyone's life. Depending on the soil of your heart, it may bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And that's based upon the faith of the hearer. Just how prepared the soil of your heart is to hear and to submit to that truth. But they all bear fruit nevertheless. And this is the lesson that Jesus desired his disciples to hear on that day. Directed unto the exhortation that they would be men whose hearts were positioned to hear and to receive truth. So that it could bear fruit in their lives. And this is also the exhortation for us today, Christian. And as we apply, there's some important things that must be said about this. First, let's talk about this parable as it relates to what some would believe. Many have read this parable and said, asked me, Pastor, does this mean you see these, these various seeds of the gospel or the seeds of the word and they fall upon this various ground and yes, you have those that Satan just snatches it away right away, but then you have these others and they receive the truth with gladness, but then the, 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 the plants die. Doesn't this mean that a person can lose his salvation? 
Well, let's talk about why it does not mean that, because it does not mean that. As I said already, take note of the fact that of these four seeds and the four soils they fall upon, only one of those four seeds fell upon soil by which it bore fruit. The final scenario, the seed falls upon good ground. It bore fruit. In every other scenario, men hear the word. In two of these three men's lives, they receive the word. But that gladness is not combined with true faith. How do we know it's not combined with true faith? Well, do you remember that message in, in Genesis? You remember that idea that faith without works is dead, being alone? It does not mean that you must, that, that, you're, that you are justified by works, but it does mean that our faith is justified by the fruit it bears. If our faith does not bear fruit, it is dead faith. It is not faith at all. The seeds that fall upon these soils, whereby they are easily offended and they quickly give way, these are people who hear the gospel and they have some sort of understanding and agreement with, or they like the idea of the gospel, but what the gospel does not do, if we're talking about the gospel here, is it, did, it, it doesn't bear fruit in, in, in any soil but the last one. And if something does not bear fruit, then it is not real faith. Real faith bears fruit. James 2 tells us that clearly. So the idea here of bearing fruit is that which speaks to a genuine spiritual response. This is why Paul contrasts in Galatians chapter 5 the works of the flesh against the fruit of the Spirit. Because when the Spirit of God works, there is inevitably fruit that it bears. And if the, if the truth bears no fruit in a person's life, then it cannot be said that that truth was ever truly received. Even if that person initially, like with the stony ground, said, that's great, that's true, amen, brother. But if it doesn't bear fruit, it was never truly received. It is for this reason that we can understand the scenario where a person might be in church and know their Bible and even perhaps teach the Bible to others and yet come to find out they're not actually a believer. Or they are living in a manner that's utterly contrary to truth in their private life. Because they know the Bible, they have even received it with a measure of gladness or to the extent that it is not asked of him persecution or asked to yield the things of this world. So they've become knowledgeable or moral or religious, but none of that directly implies that they've ever become spiritual. It doesn't. Say, well, pastor, how can that happen? Could, could, could it happen over years? Well, here's the thing. In certain countries, probably not. Because in certain countries, they, re, they hear the gospel and it's not going to be real long before persecution comes, before sorrow comes, or before a, an opportunity to choose between the things of this world and the things of the gospel comes. But in other places and other times, that challenge may not be as evident. You may not actually have to choose for a while between the things of this world and the things of the gospel. You may not actually have to choose between persecution or the gospel. And so a person can live in a non-fruit-born existence for quite some time before something actually confronts them that exposes whether or not what they've heard has been received into soil that bears good fruit.
And in this we are warned that we would examine our own hearts as to whether or not we are spiritual, not just religious, not just knowledgeable, but spiritual. I preached a message a few months back about how to know that you're a believer. And in that message, I spoke of five evidences, all Holy Spirit-based, that a person is a believer. Not rooted in a memory, not rooted in a profession, not rooted in a prayer, not even rooted in a valid way, right? Many people say, well, how do I know, Pastor? Because I trust the Word of God. The Word of God says it. I believe it is true. That's, that's entirely valid. Not going to argue against that. But we're talking about evidence-based. We're talking about the fruit that comes. And that's the idea. The root of those five things that I shared with you are fruit-based. The fruit of one who has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, because that's what the Bible says, that God has given to us of his Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Let me remind you of those very briefly. Go back and listen to the message from September 10th if you want uh, all of the, the details on that. But these five attributes are, first, that you experience the teaching or the illuminating ministry of God. This has been one of the primary topics of our day-to-day, -day, right? We have explored it already in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The only man who can know the things of the Spirit is the man who has the Spirit of God. So if you understand spirit of things, uh, spiritual things, if, the spirit, if spiritual things are illuminated unto you so that you understand the spiritual, that's a good sign that the Spirit of God is working, is illuminating, is in you. Second, conviction and chastening. A Holy Spirit-indwelled believer is called a child of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8 tell us that if you are not chastened for, uh, by God, if you are not both chastened in, in your rebellion and taught by Him, stretched by Him, tested by Him to help you grow, then you're not His child. Because whom the, the Lord loves, He corrects. Hebrews quoting there from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Third evidence of the Spirit is a love for the brethren. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 asks, If a man does not love his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And so the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, well, the, the fruit of the Spirit of God, not, not one of the fruits of the Spirit, we'll get to those in a moment, but the fruit of the Spirit of God in the life of a man who is indwelled by the Spirit of God is that he has a love for the brethren. Fourth, evidence is a love for righteousness. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 tells us that the love of God is realized in the man who keeps God's commandments and his commandments are not grievous. That does not mean that you're perfect. It does not mean that you, you are sinless. It does not mean that you do not falter or fail. And we know that because in the context, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And in the verses prior to that, he says, if a man say he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we know that the man who is a follower of Christ is still going to sin, but he is a man who loves righteousness. The fact that you, you sin or that you, uh, you, still, you still are drawn to sin makes you human. But the question is, do you love righteousness? Because the man who is righteous loves righteousness. The man who loves God desires to keep God's commandments, and it is not grievous to keep God's commandments. It is a desire in his heart to keep God's commandments. And then fifth and finally, he bears the fruit of the Spirit. 
given in Galatians chapter 5, verses 20, uh, 22 and 23 as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Not that you are conjuring these things up in yourself, not that these are your natural attributes, but that you, as you are walking with the Lord, are pro- the, the Spirit of God is producing these things in you. And you see the Spirit of God producing them in you so that even in those times where you would say, wow, it would not be natural for me to act in such a manner toward that person, a loving manner or a patient manner, but I did. I saw something in me that was outside of me being worked through me. That's the Spirit of God doing His work in you. The spiritual man can be spiritual because he has the Spirit of God within him. And as he sees the fruit of the spirit of this spiritual existence, as these five Holy Spirit-founded interactions and attributes exist within him, he knows that the seed of the Word, that is the gospel, that was planted in his heart, has borne fruit. Maybe only 30-fold in you, maybe 60-fold, maybe 100-fold. Maybe you're still working on getting from 30-fold to 60-fold or from 60-fold to 100-fold, and that's all well and good, but it has borne some fruit. You say, well, pastor... Kind of maybe twofold for me. It bore fruit, right? It bore fruit. That's what we're looking for. Now, the other thing we need to mention about this parable, and that's that this is not a parable only describing receiving the gospel. Many times when we read this parable, people think of it only as it relates to this idea of salvation, uh, whether or not a person receives it. And, 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 and that's natural because you go and you evangelize and if you've ever done any door knocking or you've handed out tracts or whatever it might be and you see someone where you can see conviction and you can see that the Spirit of God is working and then at some point it's like they snap out of it and they reject it and you walk away and you, you say, man, it was there. And it's like you could see that bird come down and snatch that seed right out of the heart. You could see the cares of this world just choke that seed of the gospel out. And so it's very natural to think of this in terms of the gospel, but it's not just a gospel truth, Christian. Or else Jesus wouldn't have had to explain it to his disciples. His disciples wouldn't have needed it. But they needed to hear it because this is not just about gospel truth. As a matter of fact, this is where we get back to that verse in chapter, in verse 13 of chapter 4. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? See, here's the thing. If you don't know the source of the Spirit, if you don't, if, if you cannot, if you don't understand that your heart has to be primed and prepared to receive with good soil the things of God, then you're not going to receive them and then you're not going to receive anything. The process of receptivity is just as relevant for you who have been born again, for you who have borne the fruit of salvation as it is for any who have not. In other words, Christian, just because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior does not mean that your soil is good to go forever. Your heart can be hardened. Your heart can be hardened in a certain area. Well, I, I, I fully trust God as it relates to provision, but you know what? Forgiveness, no. Or for forgiveness, great, but not that person. Sorry, God, uh-uh. Nope. You have hardened your heart in that area. And when your heart is hard, the seeds of truth will not grow properly. We talked about this when we talked through James 2 as well, some time ago. Wherein we learned that every aspect of faith will inevitably bear fruit if we are exercising it. And faith is not monolithic. 
Faith is not just in or out. You have faith or you don't have faith. I might have faith that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but that doesn't mean I have faith that he will provide or protect or deliver or guide. These might all be individual faith battles where my heart has to be supple, where my heart has to be receptive, where the, the, the hardness of my heart must be tilled up and ready to receive so that when the, the, the word of God, as it relates to that particular area of my life, enters into my heart, it is able to grow and to bear fruit. And in any even Christian's life, it is entirely possible that the world, the flesh, and the devil can come in and can choke out those seeds of truth. Each is another step of faith, another aspect of faith. And I know when I have received that aspect of faith because I see it bear fruit in my life. If I may put it into Mark 4 language, the truth which Christ speaks will bear fruit in your heart so that Jesus' teaching about the sower and the seeds is not only, I would say not even primarily, teaching us about accepting the gospel or sharing the gospel but rather it is about the whole process of how it is that you and I either receive or reject truth. How is it that the truths of God's word bear spiritual fruit in your life? Or how is it that they fall flat? And either through Satan's deceits and lies, or offenses, or perse offenses, persecutions, or hardships, or the allure of the promises of this world fail to bear fruit in our lives. Maybe you're struggling in an area of your life right now, Christian. Maybe there's something, and you, you, you've heard the Word of God, and you know what the Bible has to say about the topic, but it hasn't borne any fruit. Well, maybe it's not that you need to spend more time learning the verses. Maybe you need to spend more time tilling the earth of your heart. Maybe you need to spend more time on how you're receiving rather than what you're receiving. Maybe it's not about you needing to memorize just that one more verse. Maybe it's about you needing to deal with the soil of your heart. What is it that is causing you to not receive what you know, what you've heard? To the degree that this message is for everyone under the sound of my voice today, each one of us should con consider the condition of our hearts. On any given day, related to any given truth that is in this book, is your heart positioned to receive the seeds of God's word? Or is your heart ill-prepared through some other loyalty, through some other love, some other devotion, some other distraction, some hardness for some reason that you're determined not to let God's word in so that the truths of God's word simply cannot take root in your heart and bear fruit. In the parallel passage to this one in Luke chapter 8, Jesus concludes his teaching with an exhortation, and I want to conclude mine with the same exhortation because it's my favorite way that Jesus actually describes the purpose of this parable. We see in here in, in verse 13 this idea that Jesus says, if you do not know this parable, you will not know any parables. And we see that he says that because at the end of the day, if you are not ready to receive, then you can receive nothing. So learn this parable, Christian. If there's going to be a lesson that you learn, it is that you make sure that your heart is ready to receive. Because if your heart's ready to receive, then the rest of this is going to be planted. 
and it's going to bear fruit. Some 30-fold, 60-fold, some 100-fold. But the thing that will hinder the ability for their fruit to be born is whether or not your heart is positioned to receive. Now, in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus said this at the end of this parable in Luke. He said, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. And that's my exhortation to us as well today. It's good that you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here too. <coughs> I hope you know your Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. If you know your Bible, it's good you know your Bible. Some of you have grown up in the church. You've grown up in Christian families. You know your Bible very well. You understand the stories. You recognize uh, the, the, the characters. You, you know what's happening. You understand themes. All of that's great. You've heard. Here's my question. How have you heard? How are you hearing? What is the condition of the soil of your heart? Is it wayside? Is it stony soil? Is it thorny soil? Or is it that ready-tilled prepared soil for the Word of God. May each of us examine the condition of our hearts before God this evening so that we would make sure that our hearts are ready, readily receptive to truth so that on the day that the Spirit of God through, maybe it's the truth from this pulpit, maybe it's your own reading, maybe it's your parent, maybe it's your sibling, whatever it is, the day that that truth hits the soil of your heart, your heart is ready to receive it with gladness so that it can plant, grow, and here's the point, bear good fruit in our lives. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.